Using SWIFT, using our existing financial system as a geopolitical tool, I think really pushes other countries on the other side of that into like accelerating innovation in emerging tech, things like Bitcoin, for example. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey, and today I'm speaking with Sorel Carr, head of fintech business at BNZ. Sorel comes from a decade in corporate banking and has been down the blockchain rabbit hole looking to inject new emerging tech such as DeFi into the more traditional banking landscape. In this conversation, we discuss the centralized networks banks are a part of, such as SWIFT and possibly CBDCs, and then the decentralized competitors that can run stablecoins and DeFi protocols like Uniswap. Before we get to Sorel, a word from our sponsor. The Blockchain New Zealand podcast is brought to you by Easy Crypto. Five years ago, a passionate bunch of Kiwis created Easy Crypto in New Zealand to enable Kiwis and others to buy and sell cryptocurrency. The Easy Crypto website is simple and straightforward. They have heaps of great educational content that caters to both beginners and experts and are very transparent about fees. You can buy crypto with New Zealand dollars or with your credit card and get crypto sent directly to your wallet. Investing in cryptocurrency can of course be risky, so always do your own research. Visit easycrypto.com to start your crypto journey today. We're up and running. Sorel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Great. Um, I want to hear what you have to say since you're the professional in this space uh, about fintech. So I have my ideas and preconceptions about what it means. And, uh, you know, a lot of that has to do with, with blockchains. Um, but let's hear it from you. What, what do you think about fintech? How do you define it? Yeah, so, I mean, there's like a specific written definition, but more broadly, I think about it like technology-enabled businesses um, and sort of technology features that plug into the financial uh, ecosystem to to enhance it um, and to better enable the financial system as we know it. It's really broad because I would think of like a company like Zero, an accounting software um, program that uh, tech-enabled accounting software that really um, enhances that experience. And so I would think of that as a fintech, but equally I would think of like the stuff that's way over to the other side, which is emerging tech like blockchain and cryptocurrency and all the derivatives of that. So um, it's really, really quite broad and um, part of the work we're doing is just to understand where the focus should be. I mean, that's that's incredibly broad, right? Like plugging in technology, I think it was Andreessen Horowitz, they had this line, right, that software is eating the world. And, you know, if you're not embracing tech, then your business is dying, basically. Yeah, and, like, you think about, like, um, a traditional um, lender, if they really put a comprehensive tech layer over the top of their service, then sort of by definition they become a fintech. Um, and so, uh, you know, you extrapolate that out and you go the other way around, technology companies can introduce um, financial service-type right. features and also become a fintech. So, um, yeah, really broad. Okay, so becoming a fintech. So there's there's bits and businesses out there that are not fintech, and then you can turn yourself into a fintech. Yeah, and I think that's that's a really um, p- particularly for sort of the big uh, tech companies like um, Apple and so on. I think that is a really interesting offshoot that a lot of those companies will look to explore. You know, you've got things like WeChat and all this sort of um, different payment rails and payment mechanisms abroad that are already reasonably popular in different cultures. And I think it's natural to assume that um, a technology company 
uh, once it has you know critical mass and a lot of um, customer data and customer engagement, um, and particularly if they sell products through their platform, it's reasonable to a degree to assume that they will consider what financial products they, they might overlay onto that to make that experience better for the consumer. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so like uh, zero fintech for sure. Well, yeah, like you look at zero, like they've got all the data, right? So um, they've got all these businesses plugging their data into the system. So what's to stop them from taking that a step further? Uh, I would say they're a fintech um, as they stand, but what's to stop them from taking that valuable data um, and using it for sort of credit assessment purposes, as an example, yep. and then overlaying like a finance function uh, on top of that. I don't think that's their bread and butter. I don't think that's the direction they want to go in. Um, not that I... Um, you know, have any insights into that, but, uh, you know, uh, there, there's some natural evolutions there to consider. So, right. Yeah. Uh, so that could be like a easy pathway for them, perhaps, or a mm. company like that to expand into, right? You've got all this customer financial mm. data, uh, develop some credit system and then start issuing loans, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's a liquidity ask there and then you, then all of a sudden you become subject to all sort of the regulatory environment that that brings, um, lending out money. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's a um, cost-benefit analysis to do there. But yes, I, yeah, I see a world where, you know, that's sort of the direction we, we feel like we're moving in, I think. Yeah. What about another example here? What about TradeMe? How do you class, how do you see what they're doing? Yeah, well, I mean, they've already got like, uh, they've already got a, um, a partner that sort of helps facilitate that function, certainly the payments function through Ping. Um, uh, yep. I don't know if there's any, if, if that has a, buy now, pay later function built into it or not. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, they're another great example that they could pivot and add that, add that rail on. on yeah, for sure. Um, they, also, they also sell insurance, although that presumably is through a partner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you, I mean, it's, I don't think it's for every big company. So it's, uh, yeah, I think that's just a general trend that we might see emerge. Okay, so what about a bank? Is a bank a fintech? And uh, how did you get to where you are today? Give us a little background. Brief. Yeah, so so is a bank a fintech? The answer is, um, depends on how you define fintech. You might say it is. It's certainly obviously a, um, a, an aged financial institution. But um, how I got to where I am, I guess uh, I've been in sort of commercial and corporate banking for the last 10 odd years. Um, and the reason for this move into focusing on emerging tech and fintech uh, is, um, you know, personally, uh, uh, there's a natural pull to the emerging tech side, you know, things like blockchain, I'm really uh, interested in have been for a number of years. Uh, and then you overlay that with um, sort of fintech as an emerging industry, you know, it's in the top 10, uh, as, as an industry in itself in New Zealand, it's a top 10 export, I think there's one and a half billion dollars a year, I think it's more now this year, that was probably a last year stat, um, in, in export revenue. Uh, just in that sector alone, so industry alone. So you can see that that's um, becoming more and more of a focus. And I think the emerging tech side, we're at this really interesting intersection where um, you've got the um, traditional financial system and the way of doing things and these emerging tech um, avenues that are really popping up really quick, uh, like DeFi and all these sorts oh, of things. Move fast, are, right? Yeah, they, it moves so fast. And so then... Like it's really interesting to be at this intersection of this um, technology and growth curve and, and see where it goes. All right. And so in terms of fintech, you are the head of fintech. Is that your, uh, is that your position? He, he, and head of fintech business. And so. And was that created just 
for you? Is this brand new? Yeah, it's brand new. It's part of a, a wider initiative that, that BNZ has um, around focusing on growth areas uh, in the New Zealand ecosystem to support New Zealand businesses, basically. Um, and so under Technology Industries, which we identified a number of years ago as a um, as a uh, an obvious growth sector, you know, it's fast becoming, you know, at some point it'll eclipse sort of the commodities market as a um, okay. as the largest export. Um, it's not there yet, but that's certainly the trend. And within that, we identified fintech as also a growing sector within the tech sector. And so um, I think uh, when you see those trends, it demands some um, attention and resource. And so um, we've sort of facilitated this this situation we're in now where we can uh, go out and support fintech businesses to grow and that all feeds into sort of the NZ Inc. story and the export story. And so what type of financial technologies are you either uh, researching or partnering with or, you know, presenting to the folks at the bank? Yeah, so um, as a as a f- the financial services as an industry, I would say, is still reasonably low on the sort of knowledge curve of the emerging tech piece. And so there's a lot of um, interesting conversations happening around what exactly is blockchain, what exactly is DeFi, what's DeFi compared to CeFi or TradeFi, whatever you want to call it, um, and how does that all play a part in the future of money. And, um, you know, uh, there's a number of other sort of bodies and people in New Zealand talking about this. The Reserve Bank is a good example. They've, you know, issued that paper around um, you know, what does the future of money look like? Yep. Is it a central bank digital currency? What is it? Um, and they've asked for public feedback on that. So it's just getting into the conversation, really. So that feedback is ongoing right now by the – so the Reserve Bank has asked for feedback on their on their paper. or Their their whole series is called The Future of Money, I think. Yeah. Um, did you see – presumably you did – their recent uh, announcement. They put out a short, short video talking about um, – you know, the future of, I think it was digital payments. Mm. What do you, what do you make of that? Um, well, I think the, the baseline question is, um, and this is sort of their focus is sort of stress testing what a central bank digital currency will look like. That's a really, uh, interesting line of thought to carry out because, um, in principle, it makes sense, you know, central bank digital currency version two of our existing currency system um but there's all these sorts of uh second and third order consequences of developing a central bank digital currency what are these principles that it makes sense upon well uh well that's another good question you have to ask do we actually need it so in new zealand we um like i think our banking system like is there a real pain point like i've got my banking app i can transfer to you it'll show up maybe not straight away but it'll show up in a few hours um and our uh interbank settlement and all that sort of stuff is reasonably uh, fluid and works reasonably well. Um, now, where it might, so I, so I don't actually know if it works in New Zealand yet, but if you look abroad and there's, there's um, you know, over 110 countries looking at CBDCs and are in different stages of a CBDC at the moment. Yeah, we've got like uh, 80% according to PwC and that was last year. So we know that that's more now. Yeah. There's this uh, site called CBDC Tracker, yep. uh, and everyone except for basically Africa and some Central America mm. and some of the some of the Kazakhstan-esque region countries, everyone except for them have pilots or research ongoing. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and they're all at, they're all at different stages. And I would say that um, one of the big uh, 
possible use cases for a CBDC would be uh, <coughs> financial inclusion. So if you had a, a government body that was able to distribute to its population um, and capture socioeconomic and different groups uh, all along the spectrum, um, perhaps that don't ha currently have access to financial services and products like you know the, the middle of the bell curve might have, that's a really good uh, reason to do it. Um, but there's a flip side to that because the financial inclusion story is like, well, okay, so you set people up, you facilitate sort of a digital experience for, for, for your country or, you know, your domain. Um, but then is everyone, for example, on the age spectrum going to buy into that? Uh, say the, the elderly going to change how they interact with money? Are they going to go from hard cash if that's what you use in your jurisdiction to a digital currency? I don't know. So, so let's stick with this for a second. So uh, a couple of local examples. Last year, the Labor Party gave us some helicopter money. I think the cutoff, there was a, a earning cutoff. It was maybe like 80 grand or something. Um, and that was all done through inland revenue, IR, IRD, the tax collecting folks. Yep. Um, so do you see potentially something like this being a good application? Okay, so... Um, possibly, but what you run the risk of, say, say, say the Reserve Bank issued a central bank digital currency. Um, some of the immediate issues I see is they've got a distribution problem. So either they go and distribute through my IRR or whatever um, themselves and disintermediate um, banks and financial institutions, or they create some sort of tender process and allow banks and fintechs and other financial-minded yep. businesses to... Um, distribute on behalf of if they distribute directly to you've got um there's this big overarching question of like um when and like what at what point do they overstep and um and by overstep i mean okay so say they distribute directly to um are they allowed to put rules around how you spend it you know and, and then you extrapolate that out and all of a sudden it becomes pretty um I don't want to say dictatorial because I don't think that's where we would end up. But all of a sudden it can encroach pretty easily on um, on rights and how we do things at the moment. Oh, it's terrifying, I think. Yeah, and so then then um, uh, then you look at a country like China, and that actually um, that you know they've developed the, their own digital currency. I don't know how far along it is. I know it's there. I don't know if it's widely used yet. Or I think they're still in the pilot stage, but they're as far ahead as anyone in terms of uh, volume and number of citizens that have had access to it. Exactly. And so if, if China, who is um, probably more an authoritarian regime, or definitely more, um, would, you know, if they have complete visibility and so they disintermediate the banks, they have complete visibility of, you know, how their population spends money, what they spend it on. The second order of that is can they impose rules around how you spend yeah. it? So, hey, here's $1,000, you know, you've been impacted by this social event, but you can only spend it on um, food and not cigarettes. I mean, what an incredible trove of data once all of that starts coming in. I mean, the, the Chinese example, I think, is quite interesting. Well, first of all, they can, they can do this, they can do uh, projects like this without, uh, you know, uh, referendums on, on, or debates in Congress or Parliament, right? They can just do them. And so the first batch that they ran had an expiry date. Mm. So it was about $50 equivalent that uh, the people got. 
um, but they had to use it quick or else they couldn't use it at all, right? Isn't that, that's wild, right? Because then that's rule one. So, um, and then that has an, its own economic impact if everyone's using currency at the same time and, you know, what does it do to the price of, of goods and services and so on. Um, so, so, so that's one issue, right? But then another significant issue I see in a central bank digital currency is then you've got, um, you've got uh, capital implications. So a bank at the moment, they've got capital adequacy requirements. You need to have a certain amount of, um, you know, money, let's call it, on your balance sheet. And that's for liquidity reasons. That's to avoid sort of this run on banks and um, yep. you know, financial crises. Mm, avoid like yeah. over uh, overstretching their lending and exactly like over leverage and uh, financial collapse like two thousand seven and so on. Um, uh, what happens if there's a social event or um, you know a black swan event where everyone goes, "Oh no, uh, I want to move all my money at the same time from New Zealand dollar, you know, my um, the balance I see in my bank account to this reserve bank." Um, currency that I see in my, my IR account. And then you've got this, um, uh, the implications of that are actually unclear. I don't know what the, you know, the, the end result is, but it certainly poses like a, a financial risk if, if you're moving from one to the other, um, like a, a bank can find itself over levered with mortgages out the door um, and not have enough yeah. liquidity to, um, you know, it's like a, a run on banks. Do they call this uh, disintermediation where... Uh, people all pull their money out of one area and then need to store it somewhere else. Whoever's holding that first bag is left with no more business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, that, so that disintermediation is a, a real critical um, risk of any sort of um, developing or new emerging currency taking over or running alongside the existing financial system. So that's, that's some of the complexity. Um, you mentioned earlier about uh, some of the elderly folks. So uh, a second example is during COVID, uh, our banks, in terms of the customer-facing services, stopped accepting checks. Uh, and this brings up an issue about reaching your rural population or possibly your, your elderly population as well that sort of grew up under a slightly different standard. Um, and the Chinese central bank digital currency example as well, they're aware of this. They know uh, how many people they have in rural areas. Uh, and so apparently, although nobody's seen the source code, but apparently in their pilot system, you could transfer uh, central bank digital currency tokens from one phone to another. So you still need your device, but you don't need mm -hmm. to be on the network, um, uh, you know, for low value transactions type of thing. So that if you're offline or you're out far away from the city, uh, you can still uh, transact with with goods and services. Um, so in terms of maybe in terms of like the local example, you know, uh, New Zealand's kind of unique in that most people live either in you know towns or or cities, but that doesn't mean that everybody does. Mm. Uh, and so um, I, I guess what I'm getting at here is, do you see that cash is on the hook for you know, uh, expiring and being done away with. Uh, yeah, but I think it's that's um, a long tail event. I don't think that happens tomorrow. Um, you know, I think the Reserve Bank, one of their mandates is sort of the stewardship of money, stewardship of New Zealand and the sort of financial system. And um, coming back to the idea of financial inclusion, I don't think, I mean, I don't think it's in, in New Zealand's best interest as a society 
to create any sort of drastic change where people are all of a sudden worse off than they were. Yep. And that's pretty obvious because you can see, you can, we can identify sort of the more rural areas as an example and probably um, areas and, and groups of population that don't have access to a device equally. You know, not just the, the, the check example paper to digital, but also, um, you know, hard cash to digital. Um, you know, digital implies you have access to the internet. You mentioned, you know, there's an example of not having access to the internet, but it still implies you have access to a device and know how to right. use it. And that, that's not the case for everyone. And so um, there's still a place for cash in this world, for sure. I think uh, that was one of my takeaways when I reviewed the recent uh, future of money proposal is that it, it, at least it struck me that they're aware that they want uh, to keep cash as part of the monetary mm. system, um, uh, you know, meaning that it has value to people. Uh, you know, other examples are maybe a lot of people use it to teach their children about the value of money growing up and stuff, yep. um, th things like that. Uh, you can send your kid out and have them earn a dollar or two uh, and have them get started that way. Um, I think we saw this, or we are seeing this as well, this at least acceptance of cash. Uh, as much as some, uh, some folks perhaps would like to see it gone for uh, criminal activity reasons, um, uh, the UK is also running a pilot. They just started it for their CBDC. And uh, in terms of another potential downstream effect or second order effect, uh, they proposed a limit that you could hold in your account of 20, not hard limit, 20 to 30,000 pounds. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe a lot for, for some people, not a lot for others, but still they're proposing a limit that you could have, presumably just because it's a pilot uh, mm. and they want to reduce the, the risk. Have, have certain parameters and so on. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's, yeah. Um, it's a, I think it's a fine line that sort of, um, the overreach, the possible overreach in those examples. It's a fine line. Uh, so it, with, in terms of emerging technology moving fast, lots of tech coming into the space, in my view, banks are kind of like Goliaths, right? They're very uh, ingrained in our society, very big buildings, um, a lot of control over things like money, over things like debt of the citizens, uh, and also seemingly slow to adapt to change. Uh, and a lot of the banks these days are using this SWIFT network, which I did some preliminary research on, on what SWIFT is. It operates just like a messaging service, kind of like an email or an SMS service uh, between banks. Um, so is, is SWIFT under threat? And what are our potential options to use a different network from a banking point of view? Yeah, so um, maybe if I could take that in a different direction and, and like take the SWIFT under threat um, and, and run with that for a bit um, because it's really interesting what's happening there. So, um, yes, I think SWIFT is under threat and, you know, there are a number of macroeconomic um, and macro sort of social um, things going on in the world right now that suggest that it is. One perfect example is the sanctions on Russian banks with the war in Ukraine. You might not necessarily associate that with emerging tech, but, um, you know, the EU, the US have um, placed, and other Western countries have placed a number of sanctions on Russian banks through use of the SWIFT network. So what that means is that yeah. um, Russian banks trying to get money in and out into other countries um, are unable to do so. 
And so what that does, using SWIFT as a geopolitical tool, if you're Russia, so, so when they first announced sanctions in 2000, early 2001, something like 6% of, um, uh, so Russians all went to the bank. Um, and, uh, Did you mean 2021? Yeah, t- oh, sorry, what, what did I say, 2001? Yeah. 2021, yeah, sorry, yeah. last year. Um, Russians went to the bank and uh, moved out um, something like 6% of all the sort of the monetary base that's in sort of the Russian ecosystem at the moment. Um, practically how that manifests, I think they would have just withdrawn it and held on to the cash and or spent it into something else, so buy gold, et cetera. Yeah, into a sack. If I can hold it, it's still mine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, or, you know, convert it into assets that are readily accessible yeah. in their immediate environment. That equated to something like one trillion rubles, which was something like 14 billion US dollar at the time. So roughly that times 1.55-ish to give you the New Zealand dollar equivalent. Yeah. You know, let's say 22, 20, yeah. 22 billion, something like that, New Zealand dollars. Um, and so the fact that they can't move money out of their country and, uh, you know, that the underlying impact is, you know, export-import issues and all sorts of things like that um, is if you're Russia – and you see that's effectively like a mini run on banks in your own sort of community, your, your own country, um, and you can't actively trade with the world. What do you do? Like you look to alternative technologies and other payment rails to to continue continue running the country, right? Things like Bitcoin, for example. Um, and so that using SWIFT, using our existing financial system as a geopolitical tool, I think really pushes other countries on the other side of that into like accelerating innovation and emerging tech. And so that talks to your point about SWIFT under threat. Right. You also have other um, sort of political, broadly political events like, you know, Saudi Arabia and China trying to do an oil and gas deal that's pegged by the um, uh, Chinese one. Instead of US dollar. Instead of US dollar. It's a little bit synthetic because I think my understanding was in the background it's still, you know, referenced against the US dollar. Um, but what it talks to is a general push in the direction of um, um, the US dollar um, possibly being debased in that example at some point. Um, but even if not, it still points to other countries looking at other means of defining value and other means of transferring value from point A to point B. Um, and that extrapolate that ends at the same place of looking for um, – you know, using emerging tech and new yeah. tech to, to do that. Yeah, that's not going to change, right? Value transfer between humans, that's not going away. Yeah. Um, on, the, on the geopolitical point here, uh, there are a few alternatives to SWIFT. I got this from Wikipedia. So there is uh, CIPS, which is sponsored by China. Yep. Uh, and it is probably the most used. Over a 1,000 financial institutions use that one. Um, SFMS, sponsored by India. Uh, Russia, in response to those sanctions, as you said, rushed to develop their own called SPFS, uh, mostly composed of Russian banks. Uh, and then there was there's another one used by uh, the EU to trade with Iran, which was also one of the earlier examples of sanctioning, using SWIFT for sanction from US pressures. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, it's crystal clear what, what's what's going on here. Yeah, it is. Um, Swift still has something like 11,000 um, banks in its sort of network. 
versus the Chinese version of, what did you say, 1,000? Yeah, it says 1,200 here. 1,200, yeah. So um, still the dominant yep. payment sort of uh, infrastructure, let's call it, but you can see the tension and the natural migration to um, towards other technology to to um, have that transfer mechanism. And that's all it is. It's, you know, how can we transfer value from point A to point B? So if Swift is kind of... Uh uh, a little bit of an an aging network, although it, you know it, it it works fine. The Swift system itself, uh, as a messaging service, works fine. Uh, where people, I think, complain is on how long it takes to for banks to settle up after they get the message from from their Swift system. Um, we mentioned earlier just a little bit about stable coins. Where do you see the difference between stable coins and a central bank digital currency? Uh, and where does blockchain tie in there? Yeah, so um, stablecoins is an interesting one. Um, it's in principle anyone can issue a stablecoin. If I've got hundred dollars in my wallet, I could print an ERC twenty token on the Ethereum network um, and make a guarantee to people around me that um, I've only there's only a hundred of these tokens and they're each worth a dollar, and I've got the hundred dollars in my bank account to um, reflect that. So you know, peg it to um, a, a unit. The issue with that though is that no one's going to trust me. No one's going to use my stable coin because of, I don't. I don't. You know. Oh, you seem like a trustworthy dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you should want to buy some. No. <laughs> um, so you, you see stable coins starting to pop up around um, around the world with financial institutions and other big corporates um, playing with it. NAB in Australia recently launched a stable coin. I think the use case initially is quite narrow though, um, and that's again it comes back to it boils down to. Uh, a mechanism for transferring value from point A to point B. And I think that can be done really efficiently with a stable coin. As to the inherent value and the adoption of a stable coin, um, in the short term, particularly, I see stable coins potentially having a use in sort of like a closed ecosystem where every counterparty accepts the value of that stable coin. For example, if I send a stable coin that I've created abroad, uh, the recipient of that stablecoin probably sees little value in it. But if I have uh, a network, a, a smaller network where we've all agreed, you know, uh, let's say you and I, we agree that it's got value. Yep. We can run transactions between you and I. Um, and I think the bigger the um, organization you are and the more trust you have, for example, a bank, if they issue a stablecoin, you're going to trust that a lot more than the stablecoin that I issue. Yeah, I think stable coins, there is a time and a place. I think they're sort of efficiency driven. We would only use a stable coin for efficiency reasons. I don't, I don't know. Do you see any use cases aside from like a settlement funk to allow settlement quicker? So I think you can take all of your blockchain uh, characteristics, put them into your stable coin, and I think all of those are benefits. So the fact mm. that uh, it's global, the fact that it's decentralized, the fact that it's you know, quick, depending on the blockchain. Yeah. Um, I think all of those, I mean, it's, a, it's the same value transfer benefits that you're getting with Bitcoin. Um, and then I think additional benefits are, uh, you know, we're running this, this double-tiered system here where we've got the fiat system uh, and then we've got the crypto system and sort of once people come out of the fiat system into the crypto system, you might not want to go back and forth. That's a bit of a pain point, right? It is, and... Um... Okay, so the decentralized, you use that word decentralized, 
And that sort of probably talks to another interesting topic we can touch on, if you like, is DeFi. Um, when you say decentralized, in the context of a stablecoin, the immediate use cases I can see it would actually be centralized. You know, it'd be like a um, uh, um, a business or a corporation or a government issuing a stablecoin, referencing it against a unit value, um, and controlling parts of it in a centralized manner. So how it's distributed and so on. For sure. Yeah. And so if you got a business and a corporate and a bank mm. all issuing their own their own stable coins, right? Like follow the pull on this thread all the way to the end, right? And you've got uh, everyone that has any type of critical mass issuing their own exactly, their, yeah. their their own stable coin. Exactly. And then then it's sort of like, what's the point? Why are we all issuing these stable coins? And particularly in an environment like New Zealand where things uh, like we said before, can settle reasonably fast. No one's really um, has any significant pain points around usage. It's yeah, well, we're like number one on the corruption index in terms of trust, stability, and ease of setting up a business. Exactly. And and um, the monetary system as we know it, like, do you have any real complaints about how we transfer value at the moment? I don't really. Um, so, so, but the technology, the smart contract technology and sort of this if-then principle of being able to settle transactions through coded parameters, that's really interesting. And that's where, that, that talks to efficiencies, right? I think that's what banks and, and um, groups who are issuing stable coins are currently yeah. playing with and testing out is the efficiency with which we can execute transactions. Uh, there is an example. This was in November. Uh, JP Morgan was the bank and they settled a... Singapore government securities bonds transfer with Japanese government bonds uh, using the yen and the Singapore dollar. Um, and they did the whole thing using a modified version of uh, Aave's smart contract code. So uh, Aave is a decentralized lender, runs on, well, runs on a number of blockchains now. Um, and this process was run on Polygon, which is a layer two on Ethereum. And, you know, I guess because it was JP Morgan and it's um, involving the trading of government bonds, uh, it was quite a big deal. Yeah, and so in that example, um, the way I understood that played out was JP Morgan on one side, JP Morgan on the other side. So it was, if you think about um, how, and it was something called like the JPM coin, right? That was it, I think. Uh, they do they, have they a JPM coin. I, I'm not sure if that was involved in this or not, but it is likely to have been. Yeah, right. So, um, the way I understood that transaction to have played out was using the coin to transfer value from point A to B and then settling back out in the traditional way um, in terms of like how the how each ledger looks. Um, so so that talks to that efficiency of um, the smart contract technology. If then, um, and you know, um, if this thing happens, then that thing happens and it settles, you know, almost instantly and at low cost and it's totally borderless. Aave is also an interesting protocol, and that's a really good use case for for smart contract technology. The principle is with Aave, you, you'll be familiar with it. Um, you know, at its at its baseline, when we fully distill it, is simply um, you know you deposit collateral into uh, the smart contract, and you uh, you know um, get issued a loan with certain parameters around the interest rate and term and so on. Yeah, and that's done instantly. I remember doing this actually when it was called Ethlend. Um, okay. Sort of five years ago or whatever it was when it launched. Um, it was interesting back then you could talk to like the CEO and telegram, telegram and so on when it launched and it took me like a minute. You know, I deposited, uh, I think it was, you know, it was called Ethlane token at the time into this contract address and received a loan uh, just to trial it out and just paid it back in 
carried on my day, but it took a minute, right? Um, and you take that technology and you apply it into the existing financial ins- um, system. That really talks to what's possible. Uh, you know, you in principle could walk into a bank or financial institution and get a loan in seconds. Now, the the problem there though, and this is where like the the, the tech people, um, I say that with affection, tech people. <laughs> um, uh, the problem there, though, is that there's qualitative features that are missing in DeFi as we know it. So when I say DeFi, I mean decentralized finance, and I mean it in its most basic form of like lending products, um, you know, finance in a decentralized manner. So decentralized liquidity, decentralized decision making through smart contracts, um, using a protocol to access liquidity, doesn't matter where you are in the world. The problem, though, is it completely lacks uh, qualitative features that protects ultimately the borrower and to a degree the lender. Ah, uh, protection of the customer. You hear this a lot. Yeah, you do, but you don't like. But the the, the technology rebuttal is a smart contract. You could actually code code away all qualitative concerns, um, and you can to a degree. But there's things like integrity that are, that are hard to truly qualify. You can qualify it through, like you know. Um, uh, bank statements and you know account activity beforehand, but um, integrity of the borrower, integrity of the lender is hard to to truly qualify. Another thing that's hard to qualify is commercial acumen in in any form. So um, if a borrower is entering into a loan agreement through a smart contract, do they really understand the loan agreement? You know, you can have the disclosure pop up on screen, but if it's like pages of T's and C's. They're not going to read that, and there's no no guarantee that they've really understood it. They're probably also not reading the smart contract itself. Exactly, and that's another big critical um, another big critical sort of risk factor is the smart contract itself. Like who's who's auditing the smart contract, particularly in a decentralized way. We trust the technology community to do that at the moment in the DeFi world, and most people are, seem to be good actors. You know, when we talk about the middle of the bell curve entering the ecosystem, so the bulk of the global populace or, or um, domestic population, however you want to look at it, we really need to start looking more critically at the how robust is the software and how do you um, manage those qualitative elements to make sure the borrower and the lender um, know what they're signing up to and it's all safe. And There's also a question whether the, the decentralized, there's two things, right? There's decentralized um capital and liquidity where, you know, in principle I can borrow from, um, you know, borderless from um, Africa or India or whatever country. Just straight out of a pool that's held somewhere or everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, And there's also decentralized decision-making. And I don't know if you need, I don't know if you really need, particularly in New Zealand, other countries probably more so, but in New Zealand if you really at the moment need either decentralized access to capital or decentralized decision-making. So if we're going to be continue to be a net tech net tech exporter uh, and grow that sector, uh, you know we can't just be worried about you know how good we have it here, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, but I think in in any world, the the first iteration of how we improve financial products and services in a blockchain context is to adopt some of the technology into the existing financial system system yep. so um if you think about it like the plumbing the background um what happens we can use blockchain to make that a lot more efficient and that's what actually that stable coin sort of experiments talk to as banks trying to get, get their heads around that uh is there any or a lot of chatter about uh stable coins in new zealand 
Uh, I know we have the New Zealand dollar stable issued by Techament. Yep. Um, I think we look across the pond to, to some degree to see what they're doing as a precursor to what we need to do. Um, th there are certainly a lot of conversations going uh, on at the moment, um, but we're still in like we're still in the the learning phase. I think as uh, as a community, and still understanding what the technology implies and what the use cases for the technology are. So we're probably a little bit less further along than say Australia. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned earlier about NAB launching their own stables. And then we talked about well, everybody having their own stables. Uh, there's a list of Australian stables here. There are about nine of them that are all, you know, pegged to the Australian dollar, uh, not necessarily issued by a financial institution. And do we need nine? I don't know. Does Australia need nine? Does anyone need nine stable? Coins? Does anyone need nine? No, we don't. Well, I mean, there's like, there's, there's nine social networks. There's probably, you could probably find like 20 or 30 or 40 social networks. Mm. Right, but the uh, network effect can only allow a few of them to gain mass. That actually talks to this killer app idea. There needs to be, uh, maybe there needs to be a killer app. I say app, you know, it might not be a physical app on your phone, but um, uh, a killer reason, let's say, for people uh, to hit that inflection point and all migrate to this new stablecoin to use it um, to, to reach that critical mass. And um, I don't think we're there yet, but, you know, those nine stable coins, people are just trying to find that, you know, and they're just experimenting with it and trying to get there. Um, just if we could jump back to DeFi, I'm interested to get your take on like, because there's new emerging economic models that I, um, that talk to the decentralization piece that I um, really am a fan of, but I see some flaws in, in like PancakeSwap, for example. Have you, have you uh, sure, that's uh, Binance's version of Uniswap. Yeah, so like, uh, so in principle, there's this sort of a centralized element. There. I don't know what's your t what's your take on on that sort of interaction through um, Uniswap or, or or PancakeSwap. Yeah, well, I mean, pa PancakeSwap compared to Uniswap, they're the same, right? It's a fork of the code. Um, Pancakes PancakeSwap is uh, it's centralized though, right? Everything in Binance's ecosystem is centralized. They run about twenty validators for their uh, EVM chain, uh, but I can't run a validator, right? So uh, I'm excluded from that. Um, Uniswap though, Uniswap, the code now runs on most blockchains. Uh, and so if you want your decentralized experience, you're gonna go to Uniswap on Ethereum or on Polygon mm. to cut down on the fees. Um, so, I mean, my take on it is that uh, Uniswap has held up very well against its competitors that have come out. So um, SushiSwap uh, three years ago now made kind of a hostile takeover bid to take the market share of Uniswap. And they did this, you know, by printing, printing Sushi tokens and giving it to everybody that used the protocol. Uh, and then those tokens, you know, inflated in value and, you know, eventually crashed in value. So SushiSwap is still around, but Uniswap uh, has managed to sort of maintain the, uh, I guess, if it's a, a network effect, you know, the, mm. there can be only one. Um, and so I, I'm completely in favor of that, although it's incredibly risky. And also it's quite complex to figure out or to uh, understand what's happening in the background, how the swaps are being made and the liquidity, liquidity pools are being put together. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I'm in favor of it. I've used Uniswap. It, 
can be expensive if you're running on Ethereum. Mm. But now that we have layer twos running, uh, you know, it can be a lot of fun. Mm. You can take tokens that you get airdropped and you can swap them into a more trusted currency immediately. Yeah. And so, so I really like the, what Uniswap sort of stands for, the decentralized nature. Um, but you're right around it can be hard to understand the economics behind it. And it's sort of like this emerging economic model. And if we look at, say, um, uh, I'll take PancakeSwap as an example because I was playing around with it uh, last week. They offer, um, they offer uh, you know, you can deposit your, your, your cake tokens and other tokens into um, effectively liquidity pools. And that liquidity is used elsewhere, um, you know, either to run transactions and presumably there's a lending function somewhere there too where, you know, borrowers can borrow out of that liquidity pool. And um, as a depositor, you, you're rewarded with uh, a, you know, um, some sort of yield. That's the principle of it. Um, but the yield at the moment in PancakeSwap is something like 50% if I deposit cake tokens into yeah. just one of the, uh, the uh, pools, not the farms, where you deposit two tokens for trading pairs yep. um, but where you deposit into you know just lock it away in a smart contract for a period of time now 50% is an artificial return like there's no way that liquidity is being loaned out to others at uh, you know over 50% plus a margin to you know right so nobody is paying in that fee that go, then goes to you that, yeah no matter how many times it turns over there's no way that it can get to 50% in a natural way as we understand economics you know, I'd, you know, if I'm wrong, I'd love to be correct. You know, th this, is, this is where I am in favor of some protection of the customer uh, because yeah. something, and I've been burned by this myself uh, in the early days when I was learning about, you know, an inflationary token and, you know, Bitcoin's 21 million limit, uh, that better never change because that is so very important, right? So something like Cake and like Sushi I mentioned earlier, they can issue these rewards by inflating the supply. And in the short term, it's great, and you might be able to sort of catch a winner. But in the long term, you know, if everyone's drowning, nobody's going to buy any water. That's that's exactly right, and that talks to like the yeah, that talks to the consumer protection side. The qualitative features are, are not there yet because um, if you look behind the the wall of of cake, you know, behind the fifty percent, you're right. It's completely they just print more tokens to to reward you with. Um, and they, you know, there's 150 mil odd tokens in circulation at the moment. They've said there's a 750 mil hard cap, but they've just said that there's a 750 mil hard cap, right? Yeah. Um, and each of these tokens hold value, and there's a sort of a burn mechanism in the background. There's, you know, um, the fees they collect on transactions, they burn a portion and send some to the developers and so on. Um, so they say it's deflationary. But, um, you know, there's a hard cap. So once the hard cap's there, it's fully in circulation. It'll be, you know, on a downward right. trend in terms of supply. But the hard cap is just we take the website's, essentially the website's, you know, statement that it's a hard cap for, you know, at face value. And then what actually happens when it goes to zero when those 750 mil have been burned away by fees, um, which would take long granted. But, uh, you know, there's an economics question there, what actually happens. Um, and so it's sort of like this synthetic or artificial return. Um, and if you're first starting to get to the ecosystem, you're looking at it, you're like, well, if I put my you know, 100 cake in there, I'm going to get 50% back. Like the, you know, these finan financial institutions are offering me 2% or 4% or whatever it is. Um, oh, man, UST last year, right? 
they were offering uh, 21%. Where does that 21% come from? You know, the way and the way you earn interest by depositing liquidity is that liquidity is used for other purposes that earns a return over and above whatever return you're getting. So, you know, there's, let's call it cost of funds um, uh, as the return that you get as the depositor. And then there's a margin which the protocol organization takes as sort of the, um, you know, their take, if you like. So to to get a 20% return, it implies that that, that money's being loaned out or used and generating greater than 20% return right. elsewhere, which I just, you know, maybe at 20%, someone might borrow at 20%, but um, by and large, you hear something like that, you're like, that, that, that sounds artificial. Yeah, absolutely. We saw what happened. It, it was artificial. It was a, it was a big house of cards. Uh, and the thing with the thing with UST, which grinds everyone's gears, especially looking back on it, is that it was deemed, you know, trustworthy. Yep. Uh, and even if you didn't yourself understand the mechanics behind with the, the dual currency system with the Terra behind the scenes propping up the price, um, you know, in a sense, that didn't matter because you could see other players putting their capital. And by players, I mean like crypto hedge funds, for example, putting their capital. And you assume that these people are smart. And this was one of our, you know, uh, big problems. Exactly. Recently. And everyone's just sort of really, um, you know, enthusiastic about the technology, where it's heading, how they can participate. And everyone just, all everyone all rushes in. But behind it, there's, you know, very little to no regulation depending on where you live. You know, FTX is another obvious example of like, you know, significant malpractice, uh, yeah. which which I actually heard you guys talk about in the FTX, last FTX, yeah. I mean, they got assigned credibility, right? Like, uh, we're into February. How far we've come in a year, you know? Uh, last year, Matt Damon was telling me, you know, dare to be brave uh, and get into uh, crypto.com, right? That was what he was hawking at the time, right? And now... That was at the Super Bowl. And now a year later coming up to the Super Bowl, I just saw that they have banned all crypto content. So there will be no crypto advertising this year at the Super Bowl, which I don't necessarily agree with that stance. But, you know, this is like the magnitude yeah. of, of what happened in, in this tiny little niche internet money industry. We talk about it lightly, but, they're, they're, you know, there's a lot of people that were significantly negatively impacted by um, the likes of FTX and Celsius and other sort of um, failures. Yeah, I mean, I guess the silver lining there is that with the hype having died down to to a degree, uh, it really calls for some scrutiny around the innovation and the use cases. And that's, I think now we're in a period where innovators are actually getting on with the innovation and figuring out how can, how can we um, use this technology in a safe way. What are you excited about coming up uh, in this year or the near future in tech, blockchain? What, what do you have your eye on? Um, I'm, I'm excited to see where, how financial institutions grapple with, um, you know, CBDCs and stable coins and what the new world of finance will eventually look like. You know, I'm hoping that, um, <clears throat> both globally and domestic, we take some reasonably significant steps in, in that direction. I'm also generally speaking, really excited about the, um, smart contracts. I think there's a use case for them and uh, not just financial um, okay. services industry, but like that if then mechanism of just being able to contract something um, is, is really, really, really interesting to me. The uh, contract application hit real estate in America. Yep. Yep. Last year there was a house sold for 200 or no, $175,000 as an NFT 
and this was in South Carolina. Any thoughts on something like this? Well, that, is, is that this... talks to the, yeah, that, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I think that talks to sort of this idea of tokenization that we hear a lot about. It's thrown around sort of in the same breadth, um, same sort of sentences, NFTs and crypto and all the rest. Um, what's interesting is that tokenization has been around forever. If we look at a certificate of title that you've got for the house that you own or whoever, that's a, a token that we all agree, that piece of paper is a token that we all agree represents your ownership in that house. It's unique to you. And that way it's a in that way um, it's an NFT, essentially, because you can't swap it for the same uh, uh, That's right, not two bits of land are alike. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and so that's just moving it in a, in a digital context. And um, the Blockchain technology is such that it's actually infinitely more trackable and infinitely more robust in how we um, define that ownership than the current system. So at the moment, depending on the asset class that you're that you're that you're dealing with, you you might have different registers that record ownership, like city council records and so on and so forth, um, which are essentially just siloed archives of information. Whereas um, tokenization and issuing tokens that represent your ownership uh, or participation, whatever it is in a specific underlying asset, that can all be housed on a single blockchain if, if we wanted it to be. Uh, so wrapping up, I ask most of our guests about Blockchain New Zealand as an organization, um, trying to get a feel for the value that a organization can bring to the ecosystem, uh, in particular with members, uh, for example, uh, why did a member decide to join? What value do you get out of it? So what, what do you think about blockchain New Zealand? How can we help the ecosystem here in New Zealand around crypto? Well, I think something that blockchain New Zealand um, can play a really important role in is bringing enthusiasts and emerging startups and um, individuals and businesses to the surface and creating a, a network. Uh, you know, if you think of like a spider web with all the points, um, at the moment, it feels like we have a lot of talent in New Zealand, a lot of people that are interested. There's a few Discord groups that are part of where there's you know interesting conversations going. But this is, by and large, feels like it's a little bit underground. So I think where an organization um, like Blockchain New Zealand can play that important role is to bring those people to the surface and connect everyone up in a more meaningful way. Also, I think um, we can. It's a conduit for taking all those people and all those ideas, sort of funneling it into a distilled, really clear to understand way, and using that to create some sort of social pressure or social tension, sort of at government and financial institution levels, to to create change. A perfect yeah, example yeah. is you know we can um, we have a voice in the arena of, um, you know, that the Reserve Bank has created around the central bank digital currency. Right. And that's, I think, important. Yep. Uh, okay. So for the last few minutes here, we'll do some rapid fire. Uh, as long or as short as, as you as you want. Uh, have you been using chat GPT? Yes, I have been using chat GPT. It's really interesting when you, <laughs> chat GPT is actually probably a really interesting conversation to bolt onto this one at a, at a later yeah. date. But um, it's really interesting when you get better at, at your prompts like the quality of information, how that changes and how that evolves and you really get what you want. You know, um, it applies in a, a, a professional context, you know, um, yep. give me stats on this industry, blah, blah, blah. But it also applies in a creative context that has yet to be fully explored. For example, um, you know, I'm not a creative person by nature at all, but uh, I possibly could be with this with ChatGPT. Sure, everyone's creative. You know? 
write me a novel that follows a similar story arc to story XYZ with the character is this yep. person they meet this person they fall in love whatever this happens at the end um, you know make it 600 words well, I don't like that edit that paragraph make it so that this person does this instead um, and all of a sudden in the space of an evening you've got yourself a novel it's a question about who owns that data where that data was pulled from if there's any proprietary information that was pulled and if you know, you're going to get a publishing house to come after you because there's similarities in the text I don't know um, that's all second order and third order conversations yeah. to have but yes I have been using ChatGPT uh, as have I. I'm very impressed so far, and I'm looking forward to Google's competitor, yep. which has just been announced. Although you get the feeling like it has been rushed, so they might be they might be well behind OpenAI, but but we'll see. Just just on that, uh, what's your view? Because um, so at the moment, ChatGPT has X amount of billion parameters, right? Uh, at some point, we can assume that ChatGPT will have um, all known parameters, you know, it's uh, that's sort of a philosophical question <laughs> to a degree, but let's just yeah. assume it has all known parameters. Um, and then a competitor in principle can copy that, uh, multiple competitors. And so at some point down the road, all those competitors, all those AI tools should converge to the same answer, no matter what, uh, to the same question, no matter what tool you use. Because if, if everyone's using the exact same data, you should naturally end up at the same endpoint. You know, there's differences in interpretation around the wording and so on. That's one way. I think I would tend to disagree with that. I think as we incorporate more and more data and as we add more sort of ent entropy into the system, uh, then it becomes more about uh, the system parameters, which at this stage are still, are still tuned by, you know, by engineers, uh, by people along the way. And so I think that you're going to get divergent activity, and I think sure. that yeah, yeah, makes sense. I think that Bing users um, tied into Chat GPT. If you're if you're not paying the, the premium uh, straight from OpenAI, uh, if you're going through their search engine, I think you're going to end up with a different set, which hopefully has a large overlap, and we get like same facts for things that we want facts about. Yep. But uh, if you ask it to write a novel, I don't think that those are going to converge. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, by that point, we're probably in the world of robots taking over anyway. So. Yeah, I think it's going to move move fast, yeah, though, yeah, right? Like, yeah. keep your eyes open. I think, uh, yeah, I think it's going to move fast. Uh, I mean, crypto has been moving so fast. Uh, it's nice to have AI come in and take some of the pressure off of, uh, yeah. uh, take some of the media attention away from crypto. Um, has your outlook changed at all since having a kid? I know that you're recently a father. Congratulations. Yep. Thank you. Yep. And uh, so I'm curious... By outlook, I mean like about this idea of long-term plans, of perhaps having a decentralized currency system that can last well into the future without deflation, yep. uh, points like that. Yeah, so um, I don't know if my outlook has changed, but I am certainly aware um, of what the future might look like. You know, it's reasonable to assume that in five, ten years' time, the how we interact with money and assets and all that sort of thing is going to be completely different to how we do it now. You know, conceivably my wallet will have, um, you know, my Bitcoin in it, a token that represents ownership in my house, uh, fiat, maybe a stable coin, maybe a CBDC, maybe uh, um, my part ownership in this chair that I'm sitting on that I can exchange with you. I think, you know, there's an old sort of saying, information is, is power and um, 
I'm naturally just interested in, in how this evolves. And so I'll just encourage other people to also uh, start learning about that technology. Um, you know, start by typing what is blockchain if, if you really don't know where to start um, and, and go from there because the world is changing and it's changing pretty quick. Uh, and things like regulation by definition comes after innovation. Uh, we're at sort of the innovation stage now um, and, you know, we've yet to have that inflection point where it's massively adopted and then, you know, regulation comes somewhere alongside that. But um, I think it's coming. Have you been following what's happening with NFTs taking up all the block space on Bitcoin lately? No, I haven't. I am interested to hear about that, though. I don't know. I have not actually. Uh, this protocol has been able to issue NFTs on Bitcoin. Uh, and uh, the problem with issuing NFTs on Bitcoin is that you have to take up a large amount of the mm. block space, which is normally used for transactions, which are very, very light. And so you compile a ton of transactions into a, into a block. Blocks are small, only a couple megabytes. Um, and so if you start putting in JPEG information, you bloat the, the blocks, right? And uh, in, well, in all blockchains, it gets way too expensive to store image data on the chain itself. Um, but some people have, uh, you know, stress testing the tech and proving that they can do it uh, and, and have started to do it. And it's kind of created a, uh, let's call it a conversation in the community mm. about uh, about sort of almost like corrupting the original yeah. blockchain. My question is uh, why, and the second question is, do we actually need NFTs on the Bitcoin network? Don't know. Don't know. Yeah. Last question. Who is Satoshi? <laughs> yeah, who is Satoshi? Um, I've got no idea who Satoshi is, but I will say there's a very good possibility that it's just, you know, um, a, a small group of friends, I, I think, you know, very possibly. Um, what we've found with the developer community, I don't know, that's my own personal perspective, yeah. is, um, is uh, very community-oriented. Community uh, it's really much a contributor environment, so it's really hard to say that Bitcoin... Uh, well, Satoshi might be one person. It could be that one person had an idea and another person built onto it. And it's, we just, we're where we're at today with that. So um, who knows? Sorrel, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain Museum Podcast. Probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers. Cheers.